Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast podcast. The podcast that laughs in the face of politics, only for politics to laugh with it, causing me to say, no, wait, we were definitely laughing at you. This is episode 109, I'm Tian Duyeb, and this week as Health Secretary and what happens if you aim a hairdryer at a chipmunk, Matt Hancock, as he says that people must take more responsibility for their own health, I'd like to apologise to everyone for getting type 1 diabetes at the age of 4 and causing such an irresponsible burden on you all. I will now step up my efforts to produce my own insulin using a homemade chemistry kit and some imagination. Hancock's new NHS health plan is to be proactive rather than reactive and boost life expectancy by five years, so hopefully that should get us back to the life expectancy we were at before austerity stalled it. And anyway, I'm sure all that'll be cancelled out once a no-deal Brexit kicks in and we'll have to survive off puddle water and mouse droppings. The plan also includes halving childhood obesity, which sounds quite violent, but I guess the children will be lighter in the end, diagnosing 75% of cancers by 2028, which sounds about the sort of waiting times that many cancer patients have now, and using technology to predict patients' illnesses. Knowing Hancock, this will be some sort of app that gives all your details away for free, and then after taking a BuzzFeed-style quiz that asks you if your illness was a fast food, what would it be, then takes all the answers and tells you you're fit to work, so stop being lazy. The main drive, though, is to get people to take control of their own health, which, look, I'm all for. If you choose to get up every morning and drink a shot of bleach to get your system going, then don't be clogging up A&E, complaining how your insides are melting when we all know you could have mixed that domestos with orange juice. But when austerity has created massive health gaps between the richest and the poorest due to costs of living, then really, when the health secretary says it's all about people making better choices for their own well-being, it's probably less about cutting out sugar and salt and more about not voting conservative. Let's face it, if things weren't quite so shit, we wouldn't have to drink so much to block it all out. MP Tracy, my surname isn't quite a nominative determinism for my former job unless you count Paula Radcliffe on that marathon, Crouch, is now former Minister for Sport, Civil Society and Loneliness, with her resignation surprisingly not at all being to do with the fact that her job title sounded like it came from some sort of random word generator. Oh, I'm now Minister for Dungeons and Dragons, Cornflakes and Doubt. 
weird. Instead, she resigned because of the delay to the change in laws for fixed odds betting terminals, which sounds a lot like another name for any departure zone Ryanair operate out of, but they're actually those gambling computers that hate you and reside mostly in pubs, betting shops and service stations, you know, in case your long, horrible motorway journey could be made lots better by losing money before you eat a disappointing sandwich. At the moment, you can bet up to £100 every 20 seconds, which I guess you don't do with change, or that would almost be impressive. I can barely get into my wallet that quick but to stop gambling addiction the new laws will reduce that to just two pounds every 20 seconds this would help curb gambling problems and then leave people with more money to get more depressed cheese and pickle on soggy wholemeal ginsters instead this new law was meant to happen in April 2019, but Chancellor and Siri Find Me a Human Who Looks Like a Stinkhorn Mushroom, Philip Hammond, announced in his budget that actually it'd now be October 2019. Crouch has been campaigning on this for three and a half years and so understandably resigned in the sort of principled decision that makes you realise she didn't really fit well in this government anyway with morals like that. She blamed the delay on other MPs who are clearly very interested in the bookmaking industry, obviously meaning Philip, love child of Ramsay Bolton and a dropped yoghurt, Davis, who has had loads of freebies from the gambling industry in the last few years, despite being a total bandit himself. You could say he has a stake in it and has kept his hand very closely guarded, but now Crouch has called his bluff, so hopefully the arsehole will fold and give up at some point soon. Tracy Crouch is now the 13th minister to resign from the cabinet in the past year, but still Prime Minister and Edward Gorey drawing Theresa May still manages to keep control, maybe because taking charge of a sinking ship isn't that glamorous a job prospect for anyone else. But 13-1 to 1 really aren't great odds for a big win if they're not in your favour. Speaking of the Prime Minister, EU officials say her chances of striking an Irish border deal are 50-50, which is a shame, because if they were just 52-48, then everyone would feel much more assured, right? Right? Brexit Secretary and glazed fillet Dominic Raab reckons there'll be a Brexit plan by November the 21st, but he also wants an Irish backstop that won't last for more than three months because it's clear he has absolutely no concept of time and how it works. I'm pretty sure that Raab would insist that Rome could have been built in a day if only those pesky Europeans had stopped getting in the way and people hadn't kept devaluing the process. Irish Taoiseach and recently promoted Debenhams store manager Leo Vradica said that a time-limited backstop wouldn't be worth the paper it was written on, and that's even before he's realised it's likely to be written in crayon so that wax may add value. There are also still worries about the status of EU nationals in the UK post-Brexit after Immigration Minister and rejected estate agent Caroline Noakes told the Home Affairs Committee that employers will have to check EU employees' rights to work, but she wasn't sure how they'd do that. Home Secretary and Marble with Eyes, Sajid Javid, said that isn't true and there will be no check, which, judging by his department's record, means they'll just be kicked out without any warning instead. Political donor and suited chode Aaron Banks is facing a criminal investigation from the National Crime Agency. And no, it's not just because they're trying to find out if there's a point where it's actually illegal to be that much of a bellend. It's because he's still not revealed the origins of the £8 million of donations that he made to the Leave.eu campaign during the Brexit referendum. And there are suspicions that actually it somehow comes from Russian funding and via his company Rock Holdings, which does sound like it could be some lovely charity that sends people away to give Dwayne Johnson a hug because he just looks he looks so huggable imagine being embraced by those arms what are you kicking what are you kicking? but it's not that it's not that it's actually aaron banks's umbrella company that isn't allowed to donate to political campaigns because it's based in the isle of man and that's not just a thing because it means that one man has to treacherously row them across the irish sea on a raft 
During an interview on The Mars Show, Banks, who looks a lot like if Baron Greenback was very, very ill, repeatedly took the Trump-esque arsehole stance of complaining that actually he's the victim and everyone else is just bullying him before saying nasty words about everyone and shouting a lot without answering any questions. Let me get a word in edgeways, he constantly shouted over everything Andrew Marr said, and the closest we got to anything useful was that when he said the source of his funding, as long as it's legitimate, is legitimate. Well, that's cleared that up then. Thanks 2018's very own Bitty McLean. The investigation hasn't yet started and there's no way to know for sure if banks' donations, whether legal or not, affected the referendum outcome, so I can't really comment on whether he's guilty. But I mean, just look at him and his stupid face like a beaten up pug, his record of being, well, really horrible, and his far-right associations, and you know, let's all just hope that karma exists. In the US, as midterm elections happen this week, US President and trampled Langerstein, Donald Trump, has reimposed sanctions on Iran because he's still jealous that he's not allowed to call himself supreme leader. Trump announced this move via his online vomitorium, Twitter, with a Game of Thrones type meme saying, sanctions are coming. Odd choice considering Trump's views of Game of Thrones are that there's blame on all sides, White Walkers seem like good guys, he agrees with Ramsay Bolton that torture works, Red Wedding could have been stopped if more Starks had swords, and he isn't sure if winter is coming as it may be a hoax from China. Iran's president, who looks a lot like an angry Papa Smurf, Hassan Rouhani, has said that he vows to break the sanctions, which makes all of this seem like it could drag out longer than a wait for a new George R.R. Martin book. Let's hope it doesn't have the same amount of casualties, although at least in this there aren't any characters that anyone likes. Lastly, former Prime Minister and upset balloon David Cameron has said that he'd like to return to politics. Is that like when the only one who can remove a curse is the one who placed it? And this week sees the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day when, in 1918, the World War I allies and Germany met in Compiègne, France and signed for the ceasing of hostilities on the Western Front, an event that is hard to imagine in today's day and age. Though that is largely because now if all those countries met together, the UK would be standing outside shouting through the windows, how about we keep firing but everyone else stops, while all the others discussed all the important things. Hey up, people. How's you? Thank you once again for either listening in or at least hitting Mark has played when this downloads so you can ignore it for another week. Either way, it still means you've thought about it, so it definitely counts. Um, it's official fireworks night as I record this, or, as it's known in my area of seemingly never-ending explosions like my neighbours are trying to fight the sky, just another night. Um, but today is actual Guy Fawkes, something that I believe in 2018 should be reworked and retitled to be Lady Knives. Um, and I refuse to go down the simple, historically inaccurate suggestion that I've done previously, you know, that it's a shame old Fawkesy didn't get the job done because... A, he was actually quite a dick and like the super Catholic libertarian type and B, it'd be condoning terrorism when actually I'd much prefer it if somebody just went to Westminster and I don't know blocked the toilets until MPs promised to stop being awful. Um, That would of course make for some really awful annual celebrations in years to come, you know, when everyone empties their bowels at the same time because politicians couldn't or, I don't know, holds it all in for a day. I'm not sure. I don't really understand how these celebrations work. The whole thing is so weirdly contrary. You know, let's blow up stuff because Guy couldn't. That's odd, isn't it? It's like remembering the Titanic's voyage with a successful boat trip, or 9-11 by getting a plane that actually manages to get to its destination. People are so weird and macabre. Anyway, I only tell you this as it's likely that throughout this recording, as I sit in my tiny, messy cupboard of a room, there might be intermittent, loud rocket wallops in the background. Um, I assume they're still called rockets. They all have really fancy names now, don't they? Like dog scarers, or baby waker-uppers, rubbish expensive ones, or whirly bastards, but... 
And I do actually, I should say, I do actually like fireworks. But this weekend has made me realise that much like if you're a pet owner, being a parent of a child too small to enjoy the fireworks means that actually all they do is wake her up instead. And that's shit. On the plus side, though, the really noisy ones then mean that we can't hear her crying uh, over them. So I suppose it swings and roundabouts. Anyway, it'll all be over soon and then we'll have nothing to look forward to till Christmas or the apocalypse. But there may be firework noises throughout and there's nothing I can do except leave this area. Um, mega thank yous uh, this week to Paul and Stephanie who donated to the uh, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. That's ko-fi.com. Um, thank you very much uh, for doing that last week. Hugely appreciated. Coffee is even more needed now. The mornings are so, so dark. Um, I mean, ideally, more than coffee, I'd either like sunshine, I don't know how you do that, or sleep. Um, but as yet, there isn't a donation page that allows that either. So until then, please, uh, please get me caffeine hits or the equivalent thereof on that Kofi page. Um, or if you want to give me a monthly donation, head to patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, where I'll soon be putting something on there as a bonus once I work out what it is and how much effort it takes. Um, thank you also to uh, Ditton666, uh, who left a nice but obviously frustrated review on Apple Podcasts, um, which is five stars, so I'm very happy about that, but also is very angry at the inaudible phone interviews, as they put it. Um, I'm very sorry that they're not always crystal clear. I often bang on about this um, and and have my stupid excuses jingle, um, but since reading the review, I've been looking into other ways to get audio uh, recordings of these interviews, and other podcasts have suggested that maybe I ask the interviewee to record it on their side too, which I'm going to try to do, but I will say that occasionally I interview people who insist that I call their landline and don't really know how to do anything too technical, you know, because they're too busy fighting the system. Um, you often find that with clever people. They're just like, well, I'm too busy actually making changes to the world. Why should I learn how to record myself on a thing? Um, otherwise, the other option is that uh, maybe I need to try and use a studio more often, which I will do if I can book guests far enough in advance and they can travel to the studio, uh, as I know the brilliant team at Acast are happy for me to do that. But, of course, all of this requires time and often money, neither of which I have. Um, or, you know, maybe I could just sack all this off and do a podcast of fireworks sounds uh, with me swearing at each of them individually um, instead. And I reckon I could release a new episode of that daily from now till New Year's Eve. If that is more favourable, uh, let me know on the emails. I reckon I could call it Wish They Weren't Mostly Lit or something like that, and that would be really popular. Anyway, uh, if you'd like to review the show, and really I will happily listen to all criticism as long as you stick a five-star rating on it, because I'm that sort of shallow, uh, then please do that on whichever pod app you use or one you don't use if you don't like to crap on your own doorstep. Uh, and most importantly, please just do spread the word about the show and tell other people you know to give it a try. Maybe at first they can listen to it at the same time as something else they like and then slowly fade one out until they feel comfortable. I hear this show goes very well with a nice early 90s electronica or white noise. Uh, last admin thing, and there's not so much this week, so it is ad minimum. Um, I am hosting for the umpteenth time in a row a lovely gig at uh, Arts at the Old Fire Station in Oxford called Bar Humbug on November the 27th, uh, which is to raise money for that venue, uh, the Old Fire Station, which does loads and loads of work for local homeless people. Uh, as well as me, uh, there's also Johnny and the Baptists, Angela Barnes and Ria Lena. Um, and they're, they're all great. It's going to be an excellent gig. And you can get tickets for that show at oldfirestation.org.uk. Uh, speaking of Johnny and the Baptists, who are brilliant musical, political, comedy types and lovely chaps and friends of mine, um, they are selling their whole back catalogue online for £20, uh, which I think is about seven hours of very funny stuff. And I guarantee if you like 
like this podcast, you will like it. It's genuinely brilliant, especially their Farage song and their Angela Merkel song, uh, two of my favourites in particular. Um, you can grab those at johnnyandthebaptists.bandcamp.com. So please go and do that. It's very, very worth it. Oh, and uh, just to say also that, you know, sometimes uh, you may think, Tin, and why aren't you delving into that subject more? It's been in the news this week. This week, for example, you might want more info on the Aaron Banks story. Well, 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 head back to episode 115, 115, if you like, where I interviewed Peter Geegan from Open Democracy all about that. See, I was totally ahead of the curve, like a goddamn trend-setting curve beater. That sounds weird. On this week's show, what I am not doing... Uh, good way to start isn't it let's tell you all the things that's not going to happen uh, i'm not looking at the u.s midterm stuff because i can't predict the future and i'll be focusing on that next week instead so what i thought this week would be good for is catching up with scottish politics and i'm interviewing journalist jennifer mckinnon all about that um plus there is a look at all the gambling stuff and there is no brexit fallout hooray it is a brexit fallout free week but that is only because next week's one is likely to be awful If you live in England and watch the magic lighty up box in the corner of your home, then you'd be forgiven for thinking that most of the rest of Britain ceases to exist for a large percentage of the year and then just reappears for rugby tournaments and hogmanay. But despite what news and government priorities might say, Wales, Northern Ireland and of course Scotland are all still very much there, very much important and mostly all a bit peeved about how things are going in general. I mean, right now, for Scotland, you know, that fuzzy hat set atop England's concertina body, they voted against independence in 2014 to stay in the EU and gain more devolved powers, only for the rest of the UK to vote for Brexit in 2016 and for Scotland to be handed less control than a younger sibling with a shared family iPad. One million Scots are living in poverty, with 230,000 of those being children. But who is to blame? The UK Conservative government for their austerity measures and allocation of funds, or the Scottish SNP government for the way that they manage it? Or is it Wales with... (laughs) No, I'm only joking. It's never Wales. They can't do anything. So, anyway, I thought it was time for a Scottish politics update this week to find out if, as Scottish Finance Minister and kid at school who's been given a star for not wetting himself today, Derek Mackay, as he says, Scotland was shortchanged by last week's budget. So, I interviewed Jennifer McKinnon to find out if that's true. Jenny is a political journalist for the Press Association, specialising in, amongst other things, Scotland and Scottish politics. And who better to ask some badly written questions all about Holyrood and its devolved ways? Well, thankfully, Jenny expertly answered my, well, as you can hear, actually, terrible questions this week. And you'll also hear um, she did it with informative and excellently nuanced responses, too. And I I really should say I'm not sure what happened to my questions in this chat. I think it's because I interviewed her in the evening. Most of the interviews I do in the day. And I just dealt with my daughter's bath time. So my brain had been too focused on trying to stop my daughter constantly wanting to drink the soapy bathwater. Stop it. Uh, and therefore, I couldn't really work out what words I needed to put into sentences for the interview. And as a result, I really sound like I haven't got a clue at all about Scottish politics, which I don't, but, you know, um, sort of more so. Anyway, luckily, Jenny was very much on the ball and I hope you enjoy. Here is Jenny. I wanted to jump straight in. Obviously, we've just had the budget uh, and uh, I know there's lots of complaints about the budget all over the place for, uh, from, from Labour and uh, Lib Dems. I've seen it. But uh, the Scottish Cabinet Secretary for Finance, uh, Derek Mackay, he said that Philip Hammond shortchanged Scotland. Um, so is he is he right? How has, has the budget affected Scotland? What does it what does it mean? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> with 
With anything financial, you're basically into the lie, into the um, realms of, of lies, damn lies, and statistics to some extent, because people can can fiddle around with with numbers to make them seem better or worse. Um, so Derek Mackay will punt you the political line that um, Scotland has been shortchanged by two billion, because he's adding up all the all the various budgets since 2010, since the Tories came to power. Um, but of course, the Tories will say, "Well, no, actually, we've given you nearly ne- nearly a billion um, over, over the next three years." So, you know, what, what are you complaining about? Um, it's all to do with some very tedious, um, <laughs> a very tedious process called the Barnet Consequentials, which a lot of people think is out of date, and which does actually benefit Scotland to some extent because it does mean that we have slightly higher public spending than than elsewhere in the UK. Um, the the originator, the, the person who came up with the Barnet formula, actually himself has said, you know, it was never intended to last this long. But the thing is that we don't have a better way of doing it um, that wouldn't cause massive political ructions, particularly with a party in power, the SNP, whose race and death rate is, is um, independence for Scotland. You can imagine what um, suddenly cutting funding like that would, would do for the SNP's chances. Is that, that there's more money per person spent? Like, is it, how, do, how does that work? Is it, I'm completely unaware of it there, there are various um various aspects of the budget so when when you're looking at the budget um you've got elements that are devolved and elements that are reserved to westminster so the devolved elements in Holyrood um are things like education and health and then you've got reserve matters which uh, tends to be sort of defense and to a large extent tax um is, is reserved to westminster so that means that whenever um the party in power in westminster makes policies, uh, makes spending decisions on uh, devolved matters, like then one gets a, a share of that funding and, and the share is per capita. So um, when, uh, if, if Philip Hammond talks about um, investing more money in, in health in England, he, he, can only, he can only talk about England um, because the devolved administration is elsewhere. Um, that means that Scotland gets a share of that funding. So Scotland will get 10%, let's say, of that funding. Does, does that make sense? Yes, yes, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but, but you say because tax is done in Westminster, but Scottish tax rate is higher, is that right? Mm, this has got really, really, really complicated. <laughs> okay, <laughs> go for it. I'll try, I'll try my best, go for it. So part, part of the issue um, with, with taxation is that um, the SNP in particular has always complained um, that... They haven't got any any control over taxation, and obviously, if they haven't got any control over the money coming in, it's a really it's a fantastic excuse to say, well, listen, you know, how are we supposed to make any spending decisions on these devolved issues of, for example, health, when when we don't have any control about how much money is coming in? That is entirely in the gift of Westminster. So, because because we had the independence referendum, the political pressure became so great that actually the Conservatives ended up saying, well, listen, we're going to give you, we're going to give you some control over tax. <laughs> but they did it in such a way that there's not that much control. So um, so Holyrood now has the power to vary um, income tax rates, which they which they did last year. And immediately it gives, uh, it, it, it's this huge, it's huge discrepancy between Holyrood and Westminster, as it was intended to be. So <laughs> it's, again, this huge political divide where the SNP is saying, listen, give us the money. Um, we haven't got full control of all the financial levers. 
and they still do, but they have control of one lever, which means that the Tories now can say, well, actually, you've got control of one lever. And this means that taxation in Scotland is higher than in England. Right. So, OK, so maybe I've got this wrong, but I read about with uh, Philip Hammond sort of raising, uh, you know, or making tax cuts uh, as part of his budget. That now will that now affect the Scottish tax rate or is that left completely alone? And does yeah, how does that work? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what's happened there is that you've got an ever increasing um, gap, a gulf between um, tax rates in England and in Scotland, because um, Derek Mackay, the finance secretary in Holyrood, has already has already decided um, to introduce. Uh, they've got five bans in Scotland now, whereas in in England, um, you've effectively got most people on a basic rate. Um, so in Scotland, <laughs> you, you've got you've got lower rates of tax that, than in England, and you've also got higher rates. So when Derek Mackay brought this this policy in last year. What happened is that rough, very roughly, half the population saw their tax fall um, because there was a lower band of, of 19p, then an incremental band of 20p, then 21p. And the richer half of the population saw their taxes go up. Um, so there is a, a top rate um, now of 46p. So in England, what you've got is these these middle bands that Derek Mackay has separated out, with some paying less and some paying more. Um, in, in England, you've already got um, most people on a kind of on on, on the basic rate on, on that middle rate, um, and that means that up until uh, I think you start earning fifty thousand in England, um, then you, you just pay a basic rate of of uh, of twenty p. And now um, Philip Hammond has said that he's going to bring in, it's effectively a tax cut for the middle class. Um, but what, what this means is uh, a year earlier than he was going to, he's going to extend the threshold at which people start to pay the higher rate of tax. Um, so that that's what's widened it. It's not actually anything that anybody's done in Scotland yet <laughs> although of course Derek Mackay's got his budget coming up in December which he may or may not decide to do anything further with the income tax rates but what's changed right now is that Hammond has been um, giving tax cuts to, to the middle classes in, in a way that Derek Mackay has not um, the the tax system um, the, the income tax system in Scotland means that um, there are there are lower taxes for some of the poorest and there are higher taxes for some of the richest sure Right. Okay. So I guess then there might be pressure now on the SNP to have tax cuts if that's being given in England and Wales. Potentially, because because now you're in a position where um, the the very well, if 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 you, it's it's always very politically um, sensitive when when you start talking about rich people. But if if you look at the fact that the median income in Scotland is about twenty four thousand. And in Scotland, the the higher rate of tax doesn't come in until you're earning pretty much twice that, about forty four thousand. Um, then I, I, I personally, I, I think you can describe these people as as you know richer than than the average person because that's that's what the income shows. However, these people 
um, would be your higher ranking police officers, your head teachers, um, doctors. So the the kind of the, 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 these are the middle classes that are um, that, that will be paying higher taxes. So it depends if if you. If, if, if you're happy to pay higher tax because you think that you you should because you're earning twice the median salary or if you're unhappy because you think that you know you don't earn enough money um and, and anything to do with median salaries you know it, it just that, that's irrelevant to you um but there's, there's been this discussion in scotland and i think it, it's I think it's been helpful for the for wider society to sort of consider where taxes are coming from and what they're paying for. And I think there is more of a kind of there's more of that kind of progressive feeling in Scotland, perhaps, partly because this conversation has been has been developed about why, you know, you, you perhaps should be paying higher taxes and where that should be going. Sure. So, I mean, because it, one of the things that I've also been reading, and I, this is possibly a a sideways segue i'm not sure but it, i've been reading that poverty has been increasing in scotland at the moment um and there's that seems to be quite yeah. a concern so is that i mean it, so what you were saying earlier and, and what's devolved and what isn't can the finger of blame be pointed uh, at the uk government for this rise in poverty or is that <laughs> the scottish governments for how, how, how you know it what's who's uh, who's directly affecting it more or what what element of power is controlling that oh wow i mean <laughs> this is one of the worst questions you've asked me because um, <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> because poverty is a really complicated thing you know um that there's so many factors that are going into it um and as you say it it depends it depends um so much on on the political decisions that are made so do do you think you know that that it is all to do with the Tories in Westminster. I mean, to to some extent, you you have to accept the fact that the Tories have made political de- decisions around austerity that have meant that they have constrained public spending. Now, as 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 I tried to explain earlier, this means that the devolved governments, such as the Scottish government, have less money because because the money has fallen across the money is falling in England, that means it falls across the UK. It means they have less money to spend on those essential public services such as health and education. And the the research that I'm familiar with, the research that I've read, suggests that those, particularly in the early years, these are the two fundamental public services. And if you start cutting funding to these services, then that is going to have a long-lasting effect throughout people's lifetimes. Um in terms of their their ability to work, um, and and that feeds in in various ways to to how much poverty you have in in your communities. But but it's even more complicated than that because Scotland starts off, um, you know, for for, for a long time now has had um, has had higher levels of poverty, and this is partly why the Barnett formula gives Scotland more money because we have more people in need in Scotland. Um, there are higher rates, um, certainly uh, historically, of people with, you know, issues around drug addiction and alcohol addiction, and so that when when you start cutting that funding, it obviously ha- has has a knock on impact on on how how easily you can deal with that, particularly if your problem is bigger to begin with. Um, but and again. Um, there's, there's another issue that's particular to Scotland. Again, it goes across the whole of the UK, but in Scotland in particular, you've got um, very high levels um, 
of, of you've, you've got a population that's aging disproportionately. You've got bigger amounts of people who, who are old and who have um, complicated multifaceted conditions that need to be treated by the NHS. So again, you have huge, huge pressures on the NHS and on social care that that are greater than those elsewhere in the country, although this is a national problem too. Um, so when you kind of, when you combine all this together, it depends if you, th obviously the funding, the total funding that goes in can only be one part of the, of the issue, but it is a fundamental part. It is a very important part of it. The management of that is also important. And I think there are arguments to be said that the SNP has not covered itself in glory in trying to organise um, things. And the things that come to my mind, particularly around mental health, um, the SNP has, 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 well, was was failing in its in its mental health strategies um, the last last time I checked. I'm not sure how how much that has improved since, um, but they failed to get together. A suicide strategy and these kinds of things are all interconnected intimately with um, with poverty. I mentioned mental health particularly because if you start looking at universal credit, which is the um, <laughs> Which, which is what the Tories at the moment are trying to roll everything together into in terms of welfare payments. Um, if you look at the fact that half of all women who are who have applied for universal credit, who were involved in that scheme, have at some point in their lives attempted suicide, you're dealing with an extremely vulnerable section of society. And there are arguments to say that you are perhaps not looking after them well enough if so many people are in that situation. Why should there be a correlation between, such a high correlation between suicide and universal credit? I would just ask that question. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And we'll be back with Jenny in a minute. But first... 
I'm not much of a gambler, which I blame partly on being vegetarian, so you know, I don't like any sort of stakes, high or low, but also I'm a total coward when it comes to anything that might mean I lose what little money I have. Most weeks, all I really do is complain that I haven't won the lottery, despite not entering it in the first place because I'm too stingy to buy a ticket. However, I'm certain that one day that is going to work and you'll all see, you'll all see. It could be you, it could be me, they mean me. Gambling addictions in the UK have risen over the last two years, and according to Gamcare, a home for old gammons, sorry, I mean the leading provider of help and info about this sort of gambling dependency, over 300,000 people have serious gambling addictions, another 450,000 people are said to be at moderate risk. Of this, there has been a 50% rise of gambling addicts hospitalised in the past year, and estimates suggest that anywhere between 250 to 650 gambling addicts take their own lives every single year. And if that wasn't bleak enough, the real jackpot for gambling companies are fixed-odds betting terminals, which currently allow people to bet £100 every 20 seconds, and they rake in £1.8 billion a year in revenue, which doesn't feel at all fair. I mean, at least the betting industry should have to try and win that by lining up different fruits or give it to charity instead. A Gambling Commission report back in 2008 said that FOBTs seem particularly attractive to those at risk of problem gambling because of their features of fast games, multi-stake, high payout ratios. And Tracy Crouch, who recently resigned as Sports Minister, has been trying to fight for something to be done about these machines since 2014. When back then, Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, called them crack cocaine machines, meaning none of us really knew if he was actually for or against them, and he said he was willing to work with Labour to address the problems with them. A review was launched by the Department of Culture, Media and Sport to be concluded in spring of 2015, and then sort of more like 2016, and then finally in 2017 there was a government review into proposals to changes to gaming machines and social responsibility measures, including reducing the maximum stake, as well as doing things like making the roulette wheel spin slower, which apparently would reduce bets, but hopefully also bore people so much while waiting for them to stop that they just leave. I mean, the washing machine makes my daughter feel sleepy, so it probably have the same effect. Labour put reducing the stakes on FOBT machines into their manifesto in 2017 before the snap election. And finally, after all that, Tracy Crouch and her boss, Matt, if only sick people would sort themselves out and stop being sick, Hancock won over the Treasury and got them to reduce the betting stake to £2. And while no date was set for that to be implemented, Crouch and anti-gambling groups wanted it from the beginning of the 2019 tax year in April. And then last week, Philip Hammond announced in his budget that actually it wouldn't be until October 2019 and Crouch resigned. Which, to be fair, is what everyone wanted to do after hearing even one of Hammond's gags. In her resignation letter, Crouch said that the six-month delay would mean the poorest people in the country would lose millions of pounds, with two deaths a day due to gambling-related problems, and that she believed the delay is completely unjustifiable. Wow, that is both awesome and gutting that one of the few cabinet members with principles has now left. Crouch also mentioned that the delay is due to commitments made by others to those with registered interests, and she didn't say who she meant, but all snake eyes are on Philip Davis, the MP for Shipley, that is most well known for generally being an arsehole, whether it be filibustering policies on tackling domestic violence, or doing the same but for a bill about providing first aid training to children, or free hospital parking for carers. I mean, if you looked up the worst in the dictionary, he's probably done something awful to have it removed from there, because that's the sort of man he is. In 2013, Davis was investigated by the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards as he gained more than £10,000 in benefits from gambling industry companies, which he didn't declare. Davis was ordered to apologise, and then nothing else happened. Yeah! He's registered as chair of the All-Parliamentary Group for Betting and Gambling, and been that way since 2015, which is what he used as his excuse to be cleared of wrongdoing over claims that he was receiving favourable treatment from Ladbrokes, who had lifted all restrictions on his betting account. He said that he's the chair 
chair of the group and a former bookmaker, so of course he had to meet with bookmakers. You know, like how if you're a cop who used to deal drugs and you're now on the drug squad, it's totally cool if you hang out with drugs barons and honk smack through your face holes for research. I mean, there's actually a term for that sort of thing, known appropriately as gambler's conceit. It's, it's goddamn there. And then, in 2017, Davis accused the government of playing to the gallery by looking at reducing the FOBT maximum stake. And this year alone, Davis has received over three grand of hospitality from Ladbrokes, William Hill and Skybet, which doesn't sound like much for those gambling giants to pay when they guaranteed get a massive lemon in Parliament every single time. The FOBT industry is massive, and this stake reduction will cut bookmakers' revenue by 150 million. The Association of British Bookmakers predict it could mean job losses of 20,000 or more and many, many shop closures. So it's obviously in the gambling industry's interests for people to still be splurging hundreds and hundreds of pounds that they don't have on their evil temptation boxes. Last October, before a debate in Parliament about FOBTs, a document was leaked to The Guardian showing several draft questions for MPs by lobbyists for the bookmakers, with many versions of them making their way into the debate. I guess they obviously had to be careful who asked them, though, as, for example, you can imagine someone like Dominic Raab forgetting to stop reading his and shouting out, Love from Ladbrokes at the end of it. Labour MP David Lammy said back then that the gambling lobby is a very open secret, backed by a very powerful and well-resourced organisation. Before the budget FOBT changes date announcement, there was a private meeting between Philip Davis and Culture Secretary Jeremy, I once painted my hallway grey, is that art right? Though Wright says that his intentions with all his meetings was to move the implementation date earlier as it was actually originally for a 2020 spring date. And Philip Davis says that he had nothing... And Philip Davis says that that meeting obviously had nothing to do with it and he wished he had that kind of sway over government policy. Which means either he's calling our bluff, which just doesn't seem right for a man with such integrity. No, sorry, I can't even pretend to say that without laughing a bit. Or the gambling lobby has even higher reach than we thought. Cratch took her shot and by giving up her job, maybe, just maybe, it'll cause some sort of royal flush in the commons. Hopefully this has made everyone more aware of the lobbying that takes place and maybe it can be tackled with enough pressure. I mean, even if it's just luck, there has to be at least one time where the house doesn't win. Right? Right? Gamcare can be found at gamcare.org.uk or at gamcare on Twitter if you want any more info. And now, back to Jenny. One of the other things I was reading about the, the um, was how how little is spent on GPs in Scotland compared to in England. I think they said that its spending was much much lower. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not entirely I'm not entirely sure why GPs are being paid less. Um, I do know that there is a that there is a, a crisis in the number of public sector workers across the board. I mean, you, you can look at GPs. There are a lot of them retiring and they're not being replaced. Um, teachers are uh, very much in the same boat if uh, teachers are being trained up and not even going into teaching because they're turned off so much by the state of the profession at the moment Um, and that there's not enough money going all around and I think I think possibly in Scotland um, there's a there's much less uh, willingness to kind of accept that and people are more likely to go out on marches and and start demanding um, higher pay. But again, at the end of the day, you've you've got to balance the book somehow. But certainly, yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely the case that there is a there is a problem with um, with a number of G- GPs and we have a shortage of GPs. Well, I was just going to say that you mentioned teachers as well because those the, the two issues that I've heard come up time and time again are education, and health, which I suppose is because as you said with the kind of confusion as to where 
you know, who to point the finger at. You know, the funding does come from Westminster, but then we also know that they're devolved. So, uh, you know, teachers were marching in Glasgow the other day, but obviously teachers, head teachers were marching in England uh, only a few weeks ago. So... Uh, I guess, uh, again, that, you know, you can't really say that that's just the SNP's fault if there's an education underfunding across the whole of the UK. It's it's completely interlinked. You know, it's I'm I'm going to say it's a chicken and egg situation. But I mean, at what point do you say is it is it the management or is it the funding? Because you can't do you know, it it could be either. It's always a combination of both because, you know, the S&P certainly has not been um, perfect in its management of those funds. You know, we, we know there are problems. With health, we we know that the um, curriculum for excellence um, has been extremely controversial among teachers. You know, they're basically saying you know, there's too much fiddling going on, and people are not allowed to do their jobs. Um, yeah, there's, there's all, all kinds of aspects where the SNP government in Scotland has maybe been um, interfering managerially in a way that perhaps they they is not conducive to, to the best use of that of the limited public funds that they have but the um sort of in in general kind of in terms of uh political polling and stuff at the SNP still very strong in Scotland I mean it's, it's funny because I think uh sort of judging by who, who I follow on Twitter I know a lot of kind of people that say sort of center center left often whenever Nicola Sturgeon does a speech always goes oh I wish they were running here you know but but I I understand that you know there's has there been a slight drop in support for them in Scotland is that is that right? Yeah, um, th- this has been coming for for a long time. Um, when you when you look at the SNP um, SNP majority in Holyrood, you have to remember fundamentally that was never supposed to happen. Um, the, the whole the whole Scottish Parliament was set up so that it would so that it would would have this proportional representation system. It's, it's more complicated than that, but so that there wouldn't necessarily be a party of in, in majority government. So the parties would have to work together more. Um, you see that in the Parliament building itself as well. Actually, just as an interesting aside, you know, whereas um, whereas Westminster has its um, adversarial two benches opposite each other system, Holyrood is, is much more of a horseshoe shape, uh, a much more sort of modern system that is supposed to be conducive to. Uh, <laughs> people working together, but of course they're politicians, so that never happens. Um, I think the the, the SNP has has always been has, has always had to get over this kind of honeymoon period, and you, you see this. I, th- I think a little bit with with Jeremy Corbyn as well. Um, so if if you speak to people in England, there's quite a lot of uh, hero worshipping that goes on. Of, of Corbyn and it's the same with Nicola Sturgeon to a lot uh, to a great extent and it was the same with Salmond actually whether he's recently um, been mired in controversy um, but I think this this kind of um, rebalancing has been a long time coming so when you see this daily record poll um, which which talks about the SNP losing um, losing its majority for independence because the SNP is already a minority government it's already propped up by the Green Party Labour, Scottish Labour has been pushed into third place by the Tories. Um, Scottish Labour has had an absolute crisis of leadership. Um, it, it's it's been really sad to watch Scottish Labour going through, um, you know, what at some point seemed like death throes, to actually, you know, emerge as the third the third party. Um, but what might be happening now, if if this poll is to be believed, and let's face it, it's pretty early on. Um, is that actually we, we we could be seeing um, Scottish Labour and the Scottish Liberal Democrats actually regaining the kind of share of votes that they that they had uh, before the last election, um, 
and pushing Scottish Labour pushing the Scottish Conservatives back into third place in a kind of as a, a rebalancing of Holyrood. Right, and is that because, because Scottish Labour now has Richard Leonard uh, as the leader, doesn't it? And I know that he sort of had that period of Jim Murphy and then kind of Kezia Dugdale in the aftermath of Jim Murphy, and then it, it, it felt like a very kind of tumultuous mm-hmm. period for that. Part any of number year. of any number of leaders, um, many of whom people would struggle to name. Um, I would, I would be loath to um, to credit Richard Leonard's leadership with um, with too much <laughs> because. And I'm not being uh, too cruel here, I, I don't think, because honestly, uh, most people that I speak to don't know who he is still. Um, I, I think it's much it's much more the kind of knock on effect of, of Corbyn um, in Westminster that is benefiting um, that is benefiting Scottish Labour. And also, as I say, the, the slight tarnishing of the SNP and the, the losing of that kind of honeymoon appeal um, as, as they pass their they're nearly 11 years in power now you know it's a long time to be in power and maybe they haven't achieved everything that they that people would hope they would sure because i mean one of the the things i remember about the or the criticism of labor when they kind of lost a lot of support was because they didn't back a you know independence um and they were very much sided with the conservatives kind of to keep the union and that then went against them so i suppose if now labor has changed then that is possibly a you know Oh, are you, are you telling me that Scottish Labour is now backing independence? Oh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> oh, I've got no idea. I, 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 that would be amazing. I mean, if you want to quote uh, an independent comedian who uh, <laughs> has an official party uh, member, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? I'd, uh, I'd definitely use that for a lot more trouble if uh, anyone gave me that level of gravitas with my uh, flippant comments. Um, but no, I wondered if uh, if that basically Labour sort of having a change of stance allows them to kind of enter back into the fray rather than being, you know, tarred as the same old lot that, yeah. they, that they previously uh, seen as. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that shift towards a more sort of Corbynite politics, um, <laughs> that, that there, are, there are concerns, but, you know, you, you have seen a bit of a, a bit of a purge amongst Scottish Labour of people who are maybe not as, uh, as Corbynista as, as others, um, some very good people, um, such as Richard Lennon's rival Anna Sawa um, getting getting booted to the side, um, but I, I think yeah, it's very hard for Nicholas. Sturg- it's harder now, sorry, for Nicholas Sturgeon to stand up and say, "Oh, they're just red Tories," when actually um, on on many and Scottish Labour always has been um, to the left of of the SNP on some issues, but they make much more noise about it now and it's more credible now coming from um, a party who in Westminster is led by by Corbyn and John McDonnell. And is, I mean, I keep asking you awful questions, I apologise, but I mean, with Scotland Scotland being sort of very uh, pro-Remain and obviously now, um, you know, Nicola Sturgeon backing a people's referendum, do you think this is all going to push people back towards the SNP and I guess you know, the possibility of another independence referendum if, if obviously Brexit goes ahead as, I mean, I was going to say it's planned, nothing's planned, who knows what's going to happen. But, we, you know, if it, if it goes ahead without Scotland getting any sort of uh, soft Brexit out of it. Uh, I'm so sorry. Right. I'm so sorry, Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's just, yeah, it's so wearing. <laughs> I, I fully, fully understand. I think for, for, for anybody who's caught up in this argument, Day after day after day. And it was actually, it was the same during the Scottish independence referendum. Um, I could not believe it that 
people didn't seem to know the ins and outs <laughs> that, that obviously people who are working on it every single day do um but there's there's an argument that you're just in this bubble and people are people outside that bubble do not care about about politics until it directly impacts them and the fact of the matter is that brexit has not directly impacted anybody yet um so i mean i i would i would just like i would take a step back from that question because i think most people I mean, so some people think Brexit's happened already, um, and I think most people are, are still sort of waiting to see what the impact of it will be. Um, and you know, this is this is why, why the responsibility on politicians at the moment is so is so high. You know, they have a duty to protect these innocent people <laughs> from the utter catastrophe that could be approaching. Um, and they're not showing a huge amount. Um, they're not showing great sense that they're actually going to do that. Um, so yeah, but before you even get onto the question of of what Scotland thinks about Brexit, just 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 the very fact that most people are still kind of oblivious, I think, to to the kind of catastrophe this this could be, um, needs needs to be taken into account, um, and I think that also feeds into the opinion polls we're seeing because we are still not seeing any shift. Um, really, you know, there's there's slightly more people now who are thinking that Brexit may be a bad idea. Um, but that has not fed in in any way at all, uh, in a way that you might expect to people um, supporting any kind of second independence referendum, I guess, because people can only deal with so much uncertainty at one time. Um, I still th- I, I still would not be surprised if if we end up with some kind of terrible Brexit and I'm including, you know, potentially a Brexit deal in that um so something that that badly affects Northern Ireland, for example, something something that means that we have uh, that we have a border on Northern Ireland. And of course, um, I just want to be really clear: every expert I've spoken to on this says that that basically means if you if you mess around with the customs union, um, if, if if we're not going to give ground on that, if, if we're not going to keep the UK in the customs union, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> um, so that sort of hidden threat is still there. Um, if if that happens, then I think then I think you could still see a very dramatic shift because people will run out of options. Um, and I think as as an emergency option, a second independence referendum might seem better, even to Liberal Democrats, even to Labour supporters, even to Conservative supporters, <laughs> um, depending how badly Brexit goes. And there is still the chance that it could go very very badly indeed. Ah, oh, it's, it's depressing, isn't it? Um, it's just uh, it's really how, are you, how are you not? I, I do feel bad asking you questions on the, in the evening. You just must be exhausted every day asking people. Asking all the time. It's, it's like you said. It's it's constantly wearing. Well, so you know, anger's an energy. <laughs> Very true, very true. Well, thank you for your, your fantastic answers. And, and just one thing that I always ask the interviewees on this podcast um, is that uh, apart from yourself, um, and in fact, as someone who's so constantly in, involved in the political world, um, who who would, who would do you look to uh, to kind of, uh, you know, for information or even maybe even for some light relief? Uh, where, where would you advise listeners go to or follow or read up for info on Scottish politics or really any any politics? What's your what's your go to? For Scottish politics, um, I am a big fan of political Yeti. I don't know if you've heard of him. No, no. It's a great name. He's, he's a guy. He's, his name is James Miller. Um, but he goes by Political Yeti and his podcast is uh, called Political Yeti. Um, he's just, he's an ace reporter um, and also a feminist ally. So I have huge amounts of respect for him. 
Thank you to Jenny for that chat. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter at underscore Jenny McKiernan, and she writes for the Press Association, who you can find at PA or on their website at pressassociation.com. And uh, James Miller, aka Political Yeti, who Jenny mentions, is at Political Yeti on Twitter, and his website is James Miller with that's AR.com. And yes, that's all the links this week. Nice and succinct, isn't it? You can use all those spare seconds you have doing something nice. Oh, wait, I've just wasted them on this bit, haven't I? Sorry, everyone as you were. Next week, I'm going to be chatting to uh, an expert all about the US midterm elections after they've happened. Uh, But after that, who actually knows? Spoiler, not me. But I would like to get someone on Welsh politics soon. And at some point, if they ever get a government again, a Northern Ireland politics update as well. Uh, All suggestions, though, on who to chat to for those things are welcome. And also, what do you want me to interview people about? Who should I seek out and send annoying emails to until they let me ask some badly written questions? Let me know or risk a really weird episode where I question myself about things while reading out wiki how answers in a silly voice and just pretending that I'm an expert about nonsense. No one wants that. Trust me, no one at all. Uh, so you can let me know who to interview or what to interview them about by tweeting me at Bro, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could plant it deep into the sea where dolphins will use echolocation sonar to discover it and race towards the coast to click their message to me in dolphin chat. Uh, Only I live quite inland, so they're going to be absolutely knackered by the time they get here. And I don't speak dolphin, so I'm just going to assume someone's in trouble or they're a bit broken and uh, I'll take them to a garage and ignore them. As always, it's probably probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Big cheers to you and your ears for tuning in. And please don't forget to review the show on the podcast app of your choice, or if you like, the dog pass crap of your choice, or Codblast Map. Up to you. I can't tell you what to do. I'm not your dad. Uh, if you can, please donate to the Patreon or Kofi sites. And most importantly, please, 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 if you enjoy this show, tell others about it on your social medias or anti-social medias. And if you don't like it, well done for listening this far. I hope you're getting sponsored. Thank you once again to Acast for tucking this show snugly into its sound bed uh, my brother the last skeptic for all of the musics and do check out his podcast thanks for trying too which is obviously available on all the same uh podcast apps or nodcast apps that you were already using um and also thank you to cat day for typing up all the linear notes uh, as per always uh, you can find her on twitter at chronicle flask this will be back next week when matt hancock insists doctors stand at a and e and tell all patients coming to man up and sort it out before sending them away again and finding them 50 quid if they bleed on the carpet Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Philip Davis' gambling expertise book, Poker. I would like to, but apparently us men aren't allowed anymore because of feminism. Read Davis's expert guide on winning vast sums of cash by simply doing as you're told, and filibustering games by taking so long to take your turn, everyone else just goes home. Poker, I would like to, but the blummin' feminazis by Philip Davis is in all terrible bookshops now for far more money than it's worth. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.